Well, good morning. Uh, I want to welcome everyone here who's in the Hayek Auditorium and also those of you who are uh, watching online. Appreciate you joining us today. Uh, we are going to talk this morning specifically about issues that impact the ability of the Congress of the United States to actually do its job with respect to the oversight of America's huge uh, national security establishment. We are joined by uh, a number of folks who have had extensive direct experience in dealing with these very issues. And to my immediate left uh, is Kurt Couchman, who is Vice President of Public Policy at Defense Priorities, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to inform citizens, thought leaders, and policymakers of the importance of a strong and dynamic military used more judiciously to protect America's narrowly defined natural, uh, national interest and to promote a realistic grand strategy prioritizing restraint, diplomacy, and free trade to ensure American security. Sounds kind of like the Cato philosophy <laughs> overall. I don't think that's entirely uh, a coincidence. Kurt spent six years on Capitol Hill, serving first as military legislative assistant to Representative Justin Amash of Michigan, and later as legislative director for Representative Dave Bratt of the Commonwealth of Virginia. He developed initiatives and built coalitions in diverse fields such as foreign affairs, defense, trade, healthcare, transparency, housing, finance, banking, and the budget process. He previously conducted legisl legislative affairs for this organization, the Cato Institute, including expanding the influence of its foreign policy and uh, defense policy scholars on Capitol Hill. He's also worked in private industry in the energy and chemical fields. He holds a bachelor's in political science from Indiana University of Pennsylvania and Robert E. Cook Honors College, as well as a master's degree in economics from George Mason University. Uh, sitting on the very end over here is Norm Singleton, the president of the Campaign for Liberty, a 501c4 nonprofit organization dedicated to the promotion and defense of individual liberty, constitutional government, sound money, free markets, and a non-interventionist foreign policy through education, issue advocacy, and grassroots mobilization. Norm worked for Congressman Ron Paul from 1997 through Mr. Paul's departure from Congress in early 2013. And when he, be he became uh, Mr. Paul's legislative director in 2001 and served in that capacity until Representative Paul uh, went back into being a private citizen. Norm also served as a volunteer policy director for the Ron Paul 2012 presidential campaign. And prior to working for Norm, uh, for Dr. Paul, Norm worked for the National Right to Work uh, Committee. Norm graduated cum laude from Washington and Jefferson College with, with a degree in economics and is a 1991 graduate of the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. He is also a founding member of the Republican Liberty Caucus. We're also joined by Sue Udry, uh, who is the executive director of Defending Rights and Dissent, which is a 501c3 nonprofit uh, advocacy organization dedicated to protecting the right of political expression to strengthen participatory, participatory democracy and to fulfill the promise of the Bill of Rights for everyone. Uh, she won her high school's Best Citizen Award in 1978 and has been trying to keep that title essentially ever since. She played a key leadership role in her, camp in her campus's peace group. And after grad school, she began knocking on doors in neighborhoods around the country as a canvasser for SANE, the Committee for a SANE Nuclear Policy, now Peace Action. She became the executive director of the Defending Dissent Foundation in 2008 and oversaw the merger of Defending Dissent and the Bill of Rights Defense Committee in the 2015-2016 era. Before coming to uh, Defending Dissent, she was the legislative coordinator for United for Peace and Justice, a coalition of over 1,600 groups opposing the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And while living in Chicago, Sue served as the executive director of the Chicago Committee to Defend the Bill of Rights, 
and is an organizer for the Coalition for New Priorities and Organized Child Care Workers for the Daycare Action Council of Illinois. She currently serves on the board of the National Coalition to Protect Student Privacy and the DC chapter of the National Lawyers Guild, as well as the advisory board of the Charity and Security Network. She is also a founding member of the Montgomery County Civil Rights Coalition, which here in the DC area is very active. I can attest to that fact. And finally, we have uh, Daniel Schumann, who is the policy director of Demand Progress, a fiscally sponsored project of the New Venture Fund and a 501c3 charitable organization. Uh, and Demand at Progress Action is a fiscally sponsored project of the 1630 Fund, a 501c4 social welfare organization. Demand Progress is a national grassroots group with over 2 million affiliated activists who fight for basic rights and freedoms needed for a modern democracy. Daniel himself leads Demand's Progress, uh, their efforts on issues that concern governmental transparency, accountability and reform, civil liberty and national security, and promoting an open internet. He co-founded the Congressional Data Coalition, which brings together organizations from across the political spectrum to advocate for a tech-savvy Congress. Daniel also directs the Advisory Committee on Transparency, which supports the work of the Congressional Transparency Caucus. And he's a fellow at Codex, the Stanford Center for Legal Informatics. His new website, and I cannot promote this heavily enough, everycrsreport.com, recently won a Lehacki Award from the DC Legal Hackers. Uh, I will tell you, I teach two graduate courses at Georgetown University, and if my students are not using everycrsreport.com for their research, I have a chat with him about that. Um, in 2016, Daniel was named to the Fast Case 50, and in 2013, Daniel was named among the top 25 most influential people under 40 in government and tech by FedScoop. He's a nationally recognized expert of federal transparency, accountability, and capacity, and has testified before Congress and appeared on NPR, C-SPAN, and more outlets than I can actually even begin to list here. He used to be a policy director at CRU, uh, policy counsel at the Sunlight Foundation, and was also a legislative attorney with the Congressional Research Service. And I particularly think that's important because I'm gonna be talking with him and asking him some questions about this entire issue of congressional support agencies and what we really need to see out of them and how members should be perhaps utilizing them a little bit better. Um, Daniel graduated cum laude from Emory University School of Law. Welcome to all of you. I appreciate you carving time out of your very busy schedules to uh, to be with us today, I want to turn the floor over to each of you um, in a particular order to offer your, your own remarks to kind of get us going here, and we'll start with Kurt. Thanks, Pat. Thanks for having me today. Thank you all for being here. Uh, I'm going to focus on Congress and how it approaches the different tools of statecraft a bit. Uh, the basic insight is that foreign policy is a low priority for most members of Congress. Uh, they have both knowledge and incentive issues with respect to focusing on foreign policy, and the institutions themselves, the House and the Senate, compound those issues. With respect to knowledge, most of them just don't have much foreign policy background. Um, in the entire Congress, House and Senate, there are two or three former ambassadors, all political appointees, I believe. There are three former Peace Corps volunteers. There are 102 members with military service, and then a handful of uh, intelligence community and, and other things. Um, foreign policy is pretty minor in campaigns typically, and even when it is present, such as during the last presidential debates, um, the treatment of it is fairly shallow. Uh, once members are sworn in, or once they become members elect and they have to deal with staffing and all of the politics of the institutions, um, there just isn't a lot of time to uh, develop the understanding and, and do the deep dive into these issues that they really do deserve. 
Um, most don't know what questions to ask. Uh, they don't know how to identify weasel words, um, cloudy statements. This is particularly important for the intelligence community oversight. Um, and the intelligence community, like the rest of the executive branch, it actually tries to minimize accountability. Um, this is probably true of most people in their jobs, minimize accountability, maximize good things, um, especially to Congress. It's worse when Congress and the executive branch are in different parties. I had some experience with that. Um, but, uh, and I'm not sure what to make of you know, the current investigations with uh, the current president and his people and that relationship with Congress. Uh, on the incentives question, uh, you know, members of Congress actually do want to do the right thing most of the time. That is, unless uh, it interferes too much with getting reelected or building their influence. Um, and, you know, honestly, that makes a certain amount of sense. Um, no one agrees with a member of Congress more than that member of Congress. So, of course, they want that agenda to advance. Um, but they do need to keep their constituents and their donors happy. They need to build political capital, basically like a favor banking strategy um, in D.C. to grow their influence. And considering all of these pressures and the high opportunity costs for how members use their time, uh, domestic policy does tend to dominate their attention. That's usually the case. But if they're on a committee of jurisdiction, um, then some of them do actually go deeper into it. Now on the institutions, um, there's a lot of things that could be said here. Daniel and I have had many conversations about that. Um, but I'm going to focus on committee membership. It's skewed. Um, members request committee assignments when they become members and then each year um, just after getting re-elected or newly elected um, and, uh, and they sort of self-select. If there's a military base or you know, a shipyard or a big platform supplier in the district or the state, armed services is a great place to be. Um, if you and some chunk of the district, doesn't have to be huge, but they have to be noisy, uh, want to stick it to some country or reward some country, then foreign affairs can be useful. Um, then leadership will take those requests and they'll actually make the committee assignments um, and they'll choose the uh, committee chairs as well. So the, uh, the result is that we tend to end up with relatively status quo agendas, especially in the national security field. There's not a lot of um, putting people on there specifically to rock the boat. Um, now, how most members of Congress see uh, foreign policy, it really derives from their experience in part um, and also what sells. Uh, the, the military component and the intelligence community are the two things that, that sell the most for protecting Americans from foreign threats. Uh, and as I said, you know, there's a lot more members of military service than in the foreign policy dimensions. Uh, but it's how you know, members of Congress show constituents that they're tough and they're engaged, um, even if other tools might work better. Um, another result of that is that uh, the intelligence community's um, legal authorizations, as well as the Department of Defense, those are reauthorized every single year, or almost every year, Intel, I think, maybe not always, um, but DOD going back 57 years or something. Um, the last National Defense Authorization Act is 970 pages long. That's the one for the current fiscal year. Um, and that doesn't count the classified annex. Uh, the last intelligence authorization that passed the House uh, was only 94 pages, but that doesn't include the classified annex, which the Intelligence Committee would never let me read. <laughs> Members have to go down and see that. So, I mean, by, by necessity, there's much less public information about the intelligence activities. Uh, members have to make special efforts to get the info. They have to go down to the SCIF, the Secure Compartmentalized Information Facility. Uh, and they generally don't let even cleared staff, uh, staff with a top secret clearance, uh, go down and read um, a lot of those documents. 
Um, it gives the committees much more control over the, um, the landscape of the debate and how the questions are framed. Um, now, members of every committee have incentives to support the agencies that they oversee and the contractors who you know, get, um, get funded through those uh, agencies, um, who oftentimes turn out to be campaign donors as well for the members of that committee. Um, it's the old iron triangle, but uh, one of the things that's distinct about Intel is there's much less public accountability and debate about the nature of those trade-offs. Uh, when it comes to you know, trade, aid, travel, diplomacy, most of those are afterthoughts for most members of Congress. They just don't see them as uh, something that the public um, is interested in with respect to you know, us and the rest of the world. Um, just to illustrate that, um, in the foreign affairs and aid budget, 98% of that spending, 98% is currently unauthorized spending. These programs haven't been reauthorized in many cases for a very long time, and in some cases, never. Um, trade policy is a mess. Doesn't look like it's going to get better soon. Um, travel could be worse. Uh, there was a new uh, proclamation last night that I saw. I haven't had a chance to dig through it, but we'll see what impact that has. But then the other thing is that all of these different things are siloed within Congress. You know, there's a committee that has a piece of it, and there's really nobody, uh, at least in the House, that is currently exercising total um, oversight of everything. So where does this leave us? That's a pretty stark picture, right? Um, well, first, the American people, um, by their nature, don't want to be out there intervening and meddling and um, just being so involved in the world. Um, I don't think there's a whole lot of policy specifics to what the average American thinks about that, but they just feel like we're doing too much over there, and that's taking away from some of the focus on things here. Um, there is some polling uh, that supports this, and it actually also shows that there's a lot of undecided voters out there. Uh, and so the upshot of that, I think, is that members of Congress actually have more freedom than they realize um, to follow their own instincts with respect to foreign policy rather than deferring to the people um, that are leaders on the, the relevant committees. Uh, when it comes to domestic surveillance, we've found out over the last couple of years that Americans really do not like to be spied on by their government. They just don't. And then, um, you know, the, the question of how you change all those dynamics, um, that's a long conversation. Maybe we'll get to it in the Q&A, but I think at this point I'll wrap up. Very good. Thank you. Sue? Um, thanks, Pat. Thanks for being here. I'm delighted to be joining Cato. Um, so defending rights and dissent um, actually looks at the way national security authorities are directed inward um, toward Americans and people in the United States exercising their First Amendment rights. And it's really been a consistent theme in our nation's history that national security authorities are used against um, religious uh, and racial minorities and dissidents. But I think it's really crescendoed post 9-11. Um, so right now, we're at a point where the intelligence community, not only does it have extraordinary authorities that Congress has given it, but it has extraordinary tools thanks to technology. And I don't think it really can be compared to any other time in our history. Um, and these authorities and tools are specifically being used against communities of color um, and dissidents because, frankly, there just aren't enough terrorists to go around. <laughs> Um, so how do we hold the IC accountable? And in our case, particularly at Defending Rights and Dissent, we're concerned with keeping the FBI uh, in line. Um, so for, for us, the way we read it, um, in, over to have, in order to have oversight of the intelligence community, we need these ingredients. 
We need whistleblowers, we need journalists, and we need activists who are willing to break into an FBI office. Um, and we need public outrage and public pressure. Um, in our case, it also helps for J. Edgar Hooper to be dead. Um, so only after we get all that, I think, do we get Congress to actually take action and do anything. And even then, if public pressure abates, we go right back to where we started. And by, by where we started, what I mean is the bad old days before the church committee. The church committee, I think, was really the high watermark of congressional oversight of the intelligence community, right? And we only got the church committee because of a whistleblower, Chris Pyle, because of a journalist, Cy Hirsch, and my personal favorite, because of the eight activists who broke into the FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, um, and called themselves the Citizens Committee to investigate the FBI. Um, but it's really stunning how far we've backtracked after the church committee laid bare the really shocking abuses of the FBI, the CIA, and the NSA, and they managed to enact really significant reforms, right, including FISA, and um, the hearings also led to the promulgations of guidelines uh, for FBI investigations. And while we would have preferred statutory guidelines enacted by Congress, in 1976 we did get um, the Attorney General's guidelines that put into place clear rules for FBI agents, among them being that they needed a predicate to open an investigation, um, and paid informants aren't supposed to commit crimes in the, uh, in the course of um, doing sting operations. So that was really good stuff in 1976, but by 1980, the guidelines were already being revised to make them weaker. And that's when the FBI, not coincidentally, launched an investigation into CISPIS, the Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador. It was a national grassroots peace group. Um, and the FBI <laughs> um, launched into this investigation of them. 52 of their 59 field offices um, were engaged. They utilized wiretaps, undercover agents, informants, intensive physical surveillance. They created dossiers on hundreds of other organizations that intersected with CISPIS in some vague way. Um, so not five years after the church hearings and the reforms it inspired, the FBI was back at it. Um, and how did we find out about the CISPIS investigation? It was through suspicious CISPIS activists, um, reporters, um, and the Freedom of Information Act. But to its credit, Congress did investigate. Um, and to my credit, I can't work my computer. Um, so at the time, back in the um, 1980s, both the Intelligence and Judiciary Committees had jurisdiction over the FBI. So it was actually the Senate Intelligence Committee that took the lead on the investigation and in 1989 released a damning report on the FBI's CISPIS investigation and suggested reforms. And among those reforms actually, um, which none of them got enacted. Um, one of the, one of the um, interesting reforms was that Senator Arlen Specter proposed legislation to create an inspector general specifically for the FBI. Right now, the FBI gets, um, the DOJ inspector general has jurisdiction over the FBI. Um, so no, none of the suggested reforms happened after the CISPIS investigation, but what did happen um, was the continued weakening of the AG guidelines until we're pretty much returned to the wild, wild west days um, of before the church committee. Um, and um, so right now an agent can open an investigation, it's called an assessment, without any suspicion, 
any suspicion whatsoever that the target is um, engaged in crime or terrorism. Um, and so not surprisingly, we're seeing evidence of abuses, um, most dramatically, of course, targeting the Muslim community. But the FBI and their friends over at DHS have also infiltrated and monitored Occupy Wall Street, environmental organizing against fracking and against the Dakota Access Pipeline, the Movement for Black Lives. Um, and this was during the Obama administration. Um, and we've also seen DHS warn, um, issue terrorist threat assessments, warning against disgruntled veterans and, and the folks with Ron Paul bumper stickers. Um, so we know about these abuses of national security authorities, not because a diligent Congress was asking difficult questions and demanding answers and reforms, but because of journalists, activists, and FOIA. Um, so because it only leaks out through FOIA, we don't have timely information, and it's not complete. So since, 20, since last year, um, Defending Rights and Dissents launched a campaign um, asking Congress to investigate the FBI. And we engaged groups that have been targeted by the FBI. Um, and uh, over 150 groups signed a letter to Congress asking for an investigation, a letter to the Judiciary Committee um, asking for an investigation and hearings. And over 88,000 activists signed a petition. But what we got out of our meetings with members of the Judiciary Committee was um, a whole lot of nothing, frankly. There was no appetite for investigations or hearings. Um, Senator Franken did send a letter to, um, to the FBI asking why agents were harassing water protectors. That's the Native American activists working against the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, and so we thought that the confirmation hearings for Chris Ray to be director of FBI might provide an opening to at least set the stage for some accountability. We talked to members of the Judiciary Committee, look, Chris Ray is going to be working for Donald Trump, who has asked for generalized surveillance of mosques. He's asked for a, um, a Muslim registry. Let's make sure that Ray's not going to aid and abet Trump on these, um, on these um, initiatives. And a few members did ask him about it. Um, his answers were totally weaselly. He did not stand up against the um, using any FBI resources for a Muslim registry. And he certainly did not say that under no circumstances would the FBI engage in general surveillance of mosques. And so what happened? Yay, they, ans they asked the questions. But every single member of the Judiciary Committee approved Ray's confirmation hearing. And at the Senate floor, um, he he got a, he, he was confirmed on a 92 to 5 vote on the floor. Um, so my feeling is we've got a long way to go um, on getting Congress to do the oversight and then actually suggest reforms and then hold to their reforms um, and really hold, hold the IC accountable. And it only works with citizen pressure. Thank you. That's what I say. Norm? Thank you. Um, I'm going to, I guess, kind of follow Kirk's remarks with some thoughts on some of the dysfunction that I saw, saw in Congress when I was on the Hill and still see, looking at it from the outside as head of an advocacy organization. I want to begin with a little anecdote. In 2005, some of you may remember the New York Times had an expose on illegal and unconstitutional surveillance. As a result, the House Financial Services Committee, which Dr. Paul served on, and I was staffing for him at the time, had oversight regarding um, government monitoring of our financial transactions. At that hearing, a, the lead Republican for the committee began his remarks by apologizing to 
the intelligence uh, uh, officials for having to waste their time coming to Capitol Hill to talk to the people's representatives about whether or not their actions were violating the rights of American citizens. Think about that for a minute. A member of Congress is apologizing because his committee is conducting oversight of, an, of a federal agency. This attitude, whether directed towards any agency, is detrimental to a Republican form of government, this de um, de deference to federal bureaucracies. However, it's particularly dangerous when you're talking about an agency that has the authority and the ability to spy on all of us, to read our emails and our cell phone conversations, collect data on us. They probably have already gone through and spell-checked my notes on my, uh, on my phone here um, for today's remarks. Um, they haven't sent me the corrected version yet, but... Uh, and um, since 2005, I think we've seen this get worse. Uh, the, the deference and the unwillingness to perform aggressive oversight uh, on, intelligence on the intelligence agencies. I think some of the problems Kirk mentioned are part of the, are part of the uh, issues. There's another issue that, um, that clouds this debate, and that is what I call the face painters. Those of you who are Seinfeld fans um, will recognize this reference from the classic episode where Elaine's idiot boyfriend, David Putty, paints his face the colors of his favorite hockey team because he's got to support the team. It's amazing in this town, maybe it's not amazing, or maybe it shouldn't at this point to be amazing to me, how many people change their positions on issues, including issues of war and peace, national security, and constitutional liberties based on the party membership of the occupant of, occupant of the White House because it's one thing to call for the impeachment of George Bush in 2005 if you're a Democrat. It's another thing to call for the impeachment of Barack Obama in 2013 after Edward Snowden has revealed that Obama is actually pursuing the exact same policies that Bush was, maybe in, it's worse in some cases because you've got to support the team. Even worse in the intelligence community is we have members of the committees who their team isn't Republican or Democrat, it's team intelligence. They have been co-opted, and a lot of this is because they don't have a lot of technical knowledge of these issues. They have this vague feeling that it's good that the government's spying on us because otherwise, if we don't sacrifice our liberties, how will we be, how will we be free? But they're misled by staff, and staff for these committees tends to largely come from a background of working for the agencies that you're overseeing. And I'll, I'll prefer to talk a little bit about this uh, later on in my remarks, but I wanted to uh, also talk about what I think is a serious problem in, in intelligence and national security, and that is the treatment of whistleblowers versus the treatment of those who they blow the whistle on. I think the best example of that is James Clapper. James Clapper blatantly lied to a Senate committee. If anybody in this room did what he did, we'd be in jail. Yet James Clapper is still considered a respected and listened to voice by the political and media class in this town, even though he's a liar, even though he's the George Costanza of, uh, of, um, nas of national um, security uh, debates. That's two Seinfeld references. I thought I only had one, but I'm pretty proud of myself for that. Um, Anyway, yet, and yet the man, Edward Snowden, the man who, in my eyes, is a hero, revealed 
the truth about Clapper and the lies of numerous other national security officials and federal bureaucrats and politicians is still a fugitive. You want another example of what's wrong with um, the way we treat whistleblowers? The only person to go to jail because of the CIA torture program, the blatantly illegal CIA torture program, was the person who blew the whistle on the program. If you want to lose your job, if you want to suffer for your security, lose your security clearance, be harassed by the government, potentially go to jail, the way to do it is to find out about an illegal government program and blow the whistle on it. And that needs to change. And I'm not sure how we do that um, other than through a public uprising and lots of public pressure because this is part of that institutional culture of the security um, Oversight Committee. Um, the other um, big problem, sorry, I'm stumbling a little bit here, but trying to figure out how to make the transition to my next point. But the other way that you see all this kind of come together, the treatment of whistleblowers, the, um, the, the, the corrupt um, culture dysfunction, little relationship between intelligence agencies and the committees that are supposed to do oversight on them is the U.S. is the fact that the only real policy change we got out of the Snowden revelations was the USA Freedom Act, which it turns out not only did it not really do anything to rein in the security committee committees, but after it came out, um, there was a security, there was an ex-official, um, Patrick, do you remember the name? Um, Are you referring to former NSA director Michael Hayden's remarks think, that, that, that this, this is this is the worst that we get out of this? I'll take it. I think I'm yeah, paraphrasing a little I, bit here, yeah, but I think yeah, that's what and, General Hayden had and, to say on and the topic. I think either Hayden or somebody else said um, this was actually a bunch of stuff that uh, we wanted anyway because it makes our job easier because uh, there was there was a lot of things we were doing that we were looking for an excuse to outsource to the private technological companies. And in the name of limiting our powers, Congress, Congress actually um, did us a big favor. So what do we do to solve that? Well, I suggested maybe um, change the laws, uh, enhance whistleblower protection. Secondly, something about the staff. Congress needs to change its own rules and do something to either force or encourage intelligence committees to start thinking outside the box. Hire people who are well-versed, understand intelligence stuff, but, they don't, but they're not complete lackeys for the intelligence agencies. Um, what you have going on here is a perfect example of regulatory capture, which is a, a phrase that uh, a lot of free market economists, including many in this building, have done a lot of good work on, which is where agencies or, or, or congressional committees become so, develop such a uh, close relationship back and forth with the entity they're supposed to be regulating or doing oversight on that they end up representing the entity's interest against the public as opposed to the public's interest against the agencies. Today, I believe we have a case where the intelligence agencies, the House and Senate intelligence agencies are working to advocate for these agencies against us as opposed to the other way around. I'm sure it happens in a lot of agencies across the board, but it's particularly dangerous in um, the intelligence community. The other thing that needs to be done is we need to loosen up these secrets. As a staffer, 
I should, in order to properly advise my boss as to how to vote on intelligence agency, on intelligence legislation, in order for my boss to make the right decision, we need more information. We need to tighten up these, these, these classified uh, statutes because the fact that we don't even have solid numbers as to what is being spent and where, what of your money is being spent by these intelligence agencies as the guardians of that money, as a, one of the Congress's two big constitutional responsibilities, the other one being declare war, and God knows they do a horrible job at that, we need more information on it. And, you know, yes, maybe there is a legitimate reason to classify a lot of this stuff, but it does need to be more carefully vetted. It needs to be tightened so that we can perform effective oversight and we don't just allow these grand poobahs on these intelligence committees to tell us we've talked to the intelligence agencies and everything's fine, just vote yes and go away. Finally, I'd like to um, kind of broaden the discussion here and say that we will never have a serious look at whether or not it's really necessary to sacrifice our liberties for security until we have a serious discussion about the root causes of the war on terrorism. A discussion many of us thought we were, thought we were on the verge of in 2007 when my boss, Ron Paul, then presidential candidate, had his famous exchange with then mayor of New York, Rudy, Rudolph Giuliani, where, um, Rudolph, where Rudy um, unveiled tremendous ignorance for a guy running as a national security expert when he said he never heard the theory of blowback. Um, we, need to, we need to start looking at whether or not it's really that um, America is an unquestioned force for good and liberty throughout the world. And the only reason anyone could resent our presence in their countries is because they simply hate freedom, puppy dogs, and ice cream. Or maybe it's because people actually resent us, coming, us sending troops into their countries droning um, wedding parties that have n that where none of the guests are connected to, to, to terrorists. But guess what? After, after they see their children dying on their wedding day from an American drone, maybe some of them actually might want to, want to uh, become part of an anti-American terrorist organization. We need to have a serious, mature discussion about that and not just continue to believe this fairy tale that we're perfect and and there, no one has any legitimate grievances about American foreign policy. Because until we have that mature discussion, we will, there will be too many people, both on Capitol Hill and off Capitol Hill and in the country at large, who will fall for this fantasy that these are just people who hate freedom, and therefore we must, we must to preserve freedom, sacrifice our, our, our real liberties for the phantom illusion of security. And also I'd like to someday be able to fly again without having to um, practically dis practically disrobe and either be nuked or um, have uh, my, my um, person invaded by a TSA agent. But I'm funny that way. <laughs> Daniel? I didn't know how I can follow that. <laughs> uh, so I, I do, I have one idea, which is thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm glad to be at a place where they hand out constitutions to folks. <laughs> uh, and it reminds me that last week was the 230th anniversary of uh, the Constitution in 1787. Uh, you know, when it was uh, originally put together, the idea was, of course, that uh, the branches would check each other, and the real fear was about Congress, right? Congress would be overpowerful, Congress would be unrestrained, uh, and so you separate the House and the Senate, you do all these other things to make sure that Congress um, doesn't overexert itself. Well, Congress isn't overexerting itself. Uh, certainly in the context of, of what happened in the New Deal and afterward, what we see is a very strong executive branch and a very weak legislative branch. And what I'd like to talk a little bit about is why is the legislative branch so weak in this particular context? 
Um, so I, I want to go back to what Sue was talking about a, a little bit, which is like the church community. So what led to the church community, of course? There was Watergate and the other things that were happening at the time. And what you saw were a number of major problems where you had national security folks uh, interfering in domestic political processes, so uh, getting into protests. You saw them assassinating foreign leaders. And they, a lot of these things they were sort of you know, doing and, and keeping it to themselves. They weren't necessarily informing Congress about what was going on. So Congress created a number of structures to try to have better oversight and engagement into this process. And part of what came out of it was the House and Senate Intelligence Committees that were like really strong for like a couple years, and then they just sort of weren't. Um, and when you look at sort of the, the course of time from the late 70s until now, let, let, you can see significant changes that have taken place in Congress itself. So there are now a thousand fewer House committee staffers than there were 25 years ago. Uh, that's, I don't know, about 20 to 25% decrease. There's a similar ratio in the Senate. There's 2,000 fewer staff at GAO. GAO, of course, is the investigative body uh, for waste, fraud, and abuse. Uh, the Congressional Research Service, where I used to work, is down 150 staff, so that's 15 to 20% as well. And of the personal office staff that remain, uh, they used to have a couple of staff that were responsible for doing oversight. Well, most of those folks have actually shifted to doing constituent work. So when you look at the capacity of the institution to ask questions, to, to go and, and when, you're, when you're engaging in oversight of an agency, to, to know what, I, I think what Kurt was talking about, you know, the right question, where you don't get sort of, you know, razzle-dazzle, but like where you can actually drill down the right kind of way, the capacity of the institution to have the people to ask those questions has changed. And then, of course, if you look at questions of, paying you know, the staff enough and making sure that you can retain them. You know, the average of staff assistants there for a year, the average LA or LD legislative director is there for a couple of years. You don't have institutional memory. Uh, so that's sort of one box that, oh, and, and just put this all since this is uh, because of the nature of where we are. When you talk about funding, the federal government spends $4 trillion a year, more, more or less, more, but more or less. Um, Spending on the legislative branch is $4 billion a year, so that's one-tenth of 1%, and that includes things like capital police and tours and things like that. When you come to staff, you're talking about in the, in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So when you're looking at the entity that's responsible for overseeing how all of this stuff is going on, they don't have the resources to do it, they don't have the staff to do it, they don't have the expertise to do it. So that's sort of one big piece of all of this. So let's go to, to another piece of this, which is the intelligence committees. And, and Norm was talking about uh, the concept of capture. So there was a report that just came out recently uh, in McClatchy that looked at House intelligence staffers. And the reporter was able to verify that a quarter of the staff for the House Intelligence Committee are former intelligence community folks. Um, but when you talk to people who work there, they say, well, the number's actually more like three quarters. So most of the people that are engaging in oversight of the intelligence community come from the intelligence community. Now, of course, you know, that people reasonably argue, well, it's useful to know, you know, you need to be on the inside to understand uh, how it functions. And there's some, there's some logic to that. Uh, but you don't send a, a mouse to catch a mouse, right? I mean, there, there is value in having people whose expertise is in oversight, people whose perspectives are different. You know, capture doesn't just come from people being evil and they want to sell out and all that kind of stuff. It comes from a shared set of values and attitudes. And you want to have people with different attitudes. You want to have someone who looks at a matter and thinks not, is this the best way for me to gather all the possible information I can possibly gather? But maybe, maybe there's a constitutional question here. Maybe there's an equity question here. Now, in, in the Constitution of the Intelligence Committee itself, it requires 
You're supposed to have a member from, who also serves on judiciary and a member who serves on armed services, a member who serves on foreign affairs, and a member who serves on appropriations. Mm-hmm. Well, for a long period of time last year, there wasn't anybody from judiciary. Uh, when they replaced a member who was on judiciary or left, they're like, oh, we're just going to waive the rules and we'll pick someone that comes from someplace else. So you don't have people who think things from a constitutional or from a rights perspective, even on the committee. They're not even in the room. And it's important to be in that room because one of the intelligence thing, things the intelligence committee is really good at doing is guarding what it thinks it's its prerogatives. If you're on another committee and you want to see what it's doing, well, good luck because you're not going to see it. The intelligence committee thinks of it as serving itself it doesn't think of it as serving the institution, right? In, in, in other contexts, when you work on armed services, when you look on oversight and government reform, there's outside communities that have expertise in these matters and they can see what's going on. Because you know, part of the weakening of Congress means that civil society and others have sort of rushed to try to fill in that gap a little bit. But in the intelligence context, you can't really go in and, and poke around inside the CIA. There, there tends to be, as, as Norman, there's, there's problems that you run into uh, when you try to do those things. You don't have access to the information. If you try to do it in certain types of ways, you'll get in other types of trouble. Uh, so that it's really a, incumbent upon the committee itself to be able to do that work. Um, but their incentives aren't aligned to do that, and they don't have the staff to do that. So there's, I, I think it was 30-something intelligence committee staff somewhere in that ballpark in the House. Uh, we just, uh, through a lot of work, we actually helped, in, uh, helped increase their staff by 30%. So they're going to be in the mid-40s. So just to put this in context, there's a million people in the U.S. with top-secret clearance. There's about 600,000 feds and 400,000 contractors. How many people in Congress do you think have top-secret clearance? Don't know the answer to that because I can't get that information, but you can probably count it on fingers and toes. Right? Or maybe fingers and toes of two or three of us. And people with top secret compartmentalized, like the ability to ask the right question when you go in there, there's not a whole lot of staff to get that. Pat's point earlier, um, when you look at members of Congress, and Kurt was making this as well, when you look at members of Congress, like members of Congress are really busy. They're responsible for everything, soup to nuts, right? As Jim Harper likes to talk about, it's like the entire gamut of, of issues that they're responsible. So do they have time to go and read a thousand page report that's available two days before a vote in a secret room someplace. It's, it does, that's not how things work. What you do is you send a staffer, but they can't send a staffer because the staff don't have clearance or the intelligence committee says you can't go there. So when you're looking at structures, when you're looking at why things end up the way they are, Congress doesn't have the staff, it doesn't have the resources, it doesn't have the attitude, and the committee that's responsible for doing this type of work largely reflects the folks that they oversee. So it's no wonder that we don't have good oversight over the intelligence community. And it's not because people are evil, or sometimes they are, but but generally speaking, it's because we have set up our institutions to fail. So that when it comes to debates over Section 702, which is coming up again, or, or USA Freedom and things like that, and we give the intelligence community exactly what they want. You know, this is the Br'er Rabbit thing. Like, yes, throw me back in this briar patch. Please, please, please don't do this. This is exactly, you know, where we want to be. It's no wonder that that's the result. And it's, not, it's because the, everything is aligned to reflect the values of the intelligence community. And look, they exist for a reason, right? They're, they're not there... We, we create these intelligence structures because there are bad things in the world and there is a need to deal with that. But when the intelligence community has no accountability to 
our elected officials when there's no public hearings about what they do, when everything happens hush-hush, secret-secret, and there are no folks on the inside who can play that role as advocate or have those different perspectives, we get what we're all here to talk about today. So I really appreciate being here, and I'm looking forward to getting uh, more into the conversation. So thank you. Thank you. No, I, we try to begin this discussion essentially looking at um, the Defense Department and foreign policy and issues of war and peace, and I want to come back to that. Um, and from there, we'll kind of work our way and get more domestic as we go with respect to the impacts here. But uh, Kurt, your colleague, Rachel Bovard, who, by the way, used to work uh, for Senator Lee on his leadership staff, mm -hmm. she recently had a piece in The Hill discussing Senator Paul's efforts to try to actually force a vote on renewing, changing, or getting rid of the authorization for the use of military force that has been in place uh, since 2001. <clears throat> and I just want to read a couple of, of paragraphs of her piece. She said, by sunsetting both the 2001 and 2002 AUMFs, the 2002 applying to Iraq, of course, within six months, Paul's amendment sought to force Congress to do as George Washington proposed, deliberate and authorize. What is shocking is that it took Paul's amendment to make the full Congress debate the prudence of ongoing military options for the first time in 15 years. That the Paul Amendment was tabled, and for those of you who may not be completely versed in, in Senate procedure, it essentially means that it was killed from a procedural standpoint. Uh, from, the, from the time that Paul's Amendment was tabled is, is a testament to just how comfortable Congress has become ceding their war-making authority to an unchecked executive. Members would rather avoid a controversial vote, prioritizing politics over performing their most solemn duty to debate and vote on war. This is not what the founders intended nor what the American people support, end quote. So why is it that the overwhelming majority of House and Senate members just don't seem to be in a hurry to revisit this issue? What's the political calculation here? Why the indifference to something that's so important from a constitutional standpoint? We'll start with you and then others who want to weigh in. Well, the reason that they don't grapple with this is because they don't have to. Uh, the executive branch is perfectly happy to use the 2001 AUMF to justify things that it says need to be done in the world to do counterterrorism missions. Um, and so as long as that's the case, then Congress won't feel compelled to revisit the issue. If President Trump said, I'm ceasing all military operations in 30 days, unless you give me an updated AOMF, I guarantee Congress would scramble to provide something. I mean, it's the same sort of thing with the, the, the separation between authorization and appropriations. Like every program is supposed to be reauthorized by the authorizing committees, and then the appropriations committee is supposed to sort of, from a macro budget perspective, figure out how to divvy up the money between all the different things. But um, as a result of the appropriations process being more or less on autopilot, it almost doesn't even matter if you reauthorize programs or not. Almost all of the non-defense discretionary programs are currently unauthorized. So I think the, the, the real key issue is that um, Congress doesn't have a forcing mechanism um, now, it does sound like Chairman Corker and Senator Flake and Senator Kane and, um, and some of the others uh, are actually interested in moving this process forward. But again, I don't think it really lights the fire under them that you need to get it done, given the differences of perspective that senators and members of the House have on how broad or how limited the, uh, the authorization should be. Other thoughts? Yeah, so there was a, a similar debate in the House. I, I was actually present at an incredibly long and fairly boring appropriations uh, hearing. And, and, and Congress, Congress Winley offered an amendment uh, on the AUMF. And to my astonishment, it passed.
right? It, it made it out of the Appropriations Committee to go and to, I, don't, I didn't, don't remember the did. it ended in a certain period of time or something to that effect. So what happened? It went to the Rules Committee, which was controlled by the leadership, and they stripped it out. So the committee had it, you know, and she had offered it apparently a number of years. And it was really, actually, it was, you know, for a committee hearing, it was a touching moment, right? So I'm sitting there. I'm there for, like, something entirely different. I didn't even know this was going to happen. Um, and, like, you know, the uh, Ruppersberger, you know, like, voted for it. Like, the, the, the folks who were on the, you know, the, the sort of the national security hardliners were supporting it as well. It was bipartisan. Like, people actually applauded after the vote took place. You don't, I mean, that's, I mean, it was also, like, four hours into the hearing, so people were getting a little punchy. But, but that was, it, was, it was a real thing. And then the House leadership was just like, no. And, and literally, they just, in the rules, you know, so, so for some, before something can go to the floor, it has to go through the Rules Committee. The Rules Committee's purpose, well, it's, it's, an, it's, it's to control the debate that takes place on the floor. What it's not supposed to do is to make substantive changes. So, of course, they made a substantive changes, and they ripped it right out, and that was the end of it. Uh, and it was, it was fascinating. I mean, it, if the House were to have a straight vote, right, if just on this thing, mm-hmm. The AMF, I think, would be gone. Maybe not, but certainly. But 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 I think that you know there would be real conversation, real debate. But when you look at where leadership is coming from, this is a structural thing. And so so who's read enough? So who gets all the national security stuff? There's something called the Gang of Eight, right? You know, the Speaker, the Minority Leader, the the Leader of the House, uh, the Senate, uh, and the Ranking Member, and like the the Intelligence Chair and Ranking Member. They don't want this to go through, so they're going to exercise their power to stop the conversation to stop the debate. And it's the same thing as what you were pointing, same thing that happened in the Senate. And it's fascinating. Nobody thinks, I, I, don't, I haven't run into anyone who's a fan of the AUMF, right? Nobody thinks that something that was intended for an entirely different context, for an entirely different reason 16 years ago applies now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet they don't want to go and rock the boat and change the circumstances and do what Congress is designed to do, which is to have a conversation, to have a discussion around whether this makes sense, and if it doesn't, what does? I will say that there are legitimate procedural concerns. I'm oh. kind of a big process wonk, and yes. uh, <laughs> I mean, the fact is that um, the question of an authorization for use of military force is in the jurisdiction of House Foreign Affairs and Senate Foreign Relations. Um, in the context of the Senate NDAA debate, um, that's the jurisdiction of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Um, yes. Uh, committees, uh, chairs of other committees can you know, provide waivers or allow things in their jurisdiction to be carried on that, but there is a legitimate issue there. With respect to appropriations, um, you know, the chairman of the Appropriations Committee should not have made that amendment in order on germaneness grounds, but um, that doesn't excuse the failure of both houses to actually proceed uh, with updating these authorities. I think that's right, and, and I, I would just say that if and no, nobody knows what regular order is. It's like a concept that people talk about. But to the extent that it's a real thing, like that there's a there, there, like there are places that this conversation should be taking place. Yeah. And, it's, and it's not. So you see things sliding, you know, there are things that are in the NDA that really don't belong there, but they're put there because it's going to move. Yep. And, and the same thing is true for, like the Appropriations Committee is not the, the right place to necessarily have the debate about the AUMF, but, but the right place doesn't, it doesn't so so you see like things sort of sliding out the sides. That's right. So, yeah. Norm, Sue, any thoughts? Um, I 
I think it's important to remember the 2001 AMF, it specifically grant, it's a very limited grant of authority. It specifically says that the president is given power to go after those responsible for the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001. It's 16 years after now, uh, it's been six, seven years since Osama bin Laden was uh, captured and killed by American forces. Clearly, this is outdated, and it's been overused and over, overdrawn. I agree with everything that most of what Kurt and Daniel said. Um, the, only, the only two caveats I would say is, one, Daniel touched on another problem, which is the Rules Committee taking things out of, um, of bills, manipulating the, manipulating the process so that, um, this, that um, oftentimes not oftentimes, but usually the side of peace and liberty has lost before the teams have even taken the field. Um, and secondly, uh, Kirk makes a good point about regular order, but the truth is that a lot of times members, because we did this in Dr. Paul's office a lot, we use the Appropriations Committee, we use the appropriations and the, what used to be the open rules process to bring forth issues um, and legislation and get votes not because we were not fans of regular order, but because that was the only vehicle that leadership had given us to do this. The appropriations process is probably the only way Congresswoman Lee had to force a debate on the AUMF. And I would say that to say that you're not doing it properly is putting the cart before the horse. Tell leadership to, uh, and tell the committees to start letting, us, letting members debate these important issues. And then we'll then members will stop abusing the appropriations process. But until we have guarantees that we can talk about the a, the AUMF, and again, this is one of the two biggest responsibilities Congress has: declaring war and um, spending the people's money. And they do a, they they don't declare war anymore. Uh, Congressman Paul was once told by the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, who was supposedly one of the leading constitutional experts in the House, that the requirement of declaration of war was an outdated relic of a bygone era. Then amend the Constitution and take it out. And, and as uh, Kurt mentioned too, the appropriations process is completely dysfunctional. And that, I, I, I'm not gonna tell you in five seconds or 10 seconds how to fix it, but I'm gonna say this is something that we need to start thinking about because we'll never get better policy until we fix Congress's broken processes. And can I, and just on that point, so if you're if you're really bored, like you can't sleep tonight, uh, you know, uh, you had too much coffee today, you want to figure out in the intelligence context, like how to fix it. There's a report on Demand Progress's website that we authored with four other organizations, and that 40 or 50 organizations from across the spectrum signed on to is at demandprogress.org/reports on how to fix intelligence oversight, and it goes through how you restructure the committee, and how you empower other folks to look at it. So if you, if you really want to get all the way into the weeds, like where the weeds are like way, like this, this will put you out. It's, it's, it's eight pages. <coughs> I think it's well-written, but um, it, it, it'll be, a, it'll be a, good, a good time for like maybe two or three of you. So. That's actually a, a good segue to talk just briefly about one key recommendation um, that Daniel especially has been responsible for pushing. And based on my own experience, I spent over 10 years on the Hill working for a member who spent eight years in the House Intelligence Committee, so I understand the value of this. What most folks probably don't realize is that, as some of the other guests have indicated, 
the committees essentially control the hiring and firing of staff, right? And this is absolutely true in the intelligence committees. In the Senate, at least, because of their rules and, and the actual authorizing legislation for the Senate Intelligence Committee, each member of the committee is allowed to have his or her own personal designee who can be cleared up to what's known as the TSSCI level or top secret special compartment information level. That SCI compartment is critical for being able to get access both to signals intelligence from NSA and also <clears throat> specialized human intelligence from my former employer, the CIA. And you have to have those kinds of tickets ultimately to really be able to do the, the detailed oversight necessary to make sure you don't go through the game of 20 questions, right? Which is what my boss talked about constantly. The Senate has that, the House does not. And I will tell you, having spent eight years trying to help Rush Holt deal with intelligence oversight issues, I was able to do a lot. I could have done vastly more if I had been able to be in those spaces to assist him. Because the one thing that I will tell you that staff can also do is help to give members spine when they need it. Um, you would, that may seem like a surprising kind of remark, but it's really true. Because members, we forget, I think oftentimes, are human beings like the rest of us. They're a little bit different human beings in that they like to hear crowds applaud them. Um, they have to be a little bit of a narcissist to run to, for office to begin with. And they have to be a little bit of a sadist to actually go through the insanity that is a campaign and the insanity of actually working on Capitol Hill. And trust me, it is insane in so many ways. But I, I agree with what some of the others have said. That I think most members start in a place where they actually want to try to do the right thing. But when the rules and the structure are stacked against them, and when the leadership makes it a point, especially in the House, to not appoint folks to the House Intelligence Committee, and this is a Republican and a Democratic thing. This is not a partisan thing. Not appoint people to the Intelligence Committee who actually want to do real oversight, that creates a problem. If you have additional staff in the mix who don't answer to the committee, that creates a different power base, or at least it helps to create a different power base. <laughs> so that was one of the key recommendations um, that Daniel's task force made, which was basically have the same kind of thing in the House that you have in the Senate. Um, also, I, I wanna take a moment to uh, encourage folks to not only go to the Demand Progress website to look at that particular report that Daniel just mentioned that they put out uh, previously, but they also put out a report literally late last week dealing with um, specific violations of the law that were cataloged essentially uh, by Marcy Wheeler, a blogger who, who worked with uh, Sean Vicka, who's a policy counsel uh, over at uh, Demand Progress. Uh, and they drew the title of the report from a comment that one of the FISA judges actually made, which is an institutional lack of candor. We don't have quite the time to get into the, to the depth on that report, but I highly recommend it to you in that it highlights just exactly how frequently uh, NSA and Department of Justice officials have lied to the, to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court and how many times they've got away with it. Uh, that finding alone, I think, should really give everyone who's concerned about the rule of law deep pause because we have a circumstance where executive branch folks are committing these false statements. The judges are only partially calling them out, going up to the line of saying, if you continue this, we're, we're gonna impose criminal sanctions, but then never actually crossing that threshold, which then raises the question about the integrity of the judges that actually sit on the federal bench right now. Because to me, it gets to the issue of, do you have a judiciary that actually values the rule of law? 
and actually doesn't tolerate false statements being made to the court year after year after year after year. So I highly recommend uh, that report as well. Uh, I want to, because we are a little bit pressed for time at this point, I want to move on to this entire issue of, of diplomacy versus war because this is, this is something that you have kind of written about. Uh, you had a piece in Stars and Stripes actually earlier this month. And you talked about this in your opening remarks a little bit. I want to kind of come back to this, talking about why the foreign policy uh, problem continues to persist in terms of congressional engagement. And you said, and I'm quoting, one factor is the relative lack of member interest. Members want to get reelected, and that requires votes and campaign contributions. Foreign assistance is one of the few areas that voters want to cut, and they think America spends far more on it than it really does. So diligently working to update those programs might not help much with voters. Most campaign contributions have little to do with advancing peace, prosperity, and human dignity around the world. That's a really strong statement, and it seems to me that your comments speak to motivations for votes and policy choices, right? The case that you're describing is an incentive structure, and one that I think is, uh, it kind of echoes the late Marine Corps General Smedley Butler's assertion that war is a racket in a lot of ways. If the concurrent congressional voting and policy incentive structure doesn't promote peace, prosperity, and human dignity around the world, are there ways that, that citizens have of trying to change that? Yeah. So we oftentimes think about the world as divided into a government sphere and a commercial sphere. And those two spheres exist, for sure. But there's also a third option. There's the independent sector. We have a lot of nonprofit organizations, non-governmental organizations that are very active around the world. We've got the Red Cross, uh, we've got um, um, Medicines, Medicines Sans Frontiers, we've got um, a bunch of different groups out there that are doing good work all around the world. Um, can our government support them? They do to a certain extent. Um, there's some humanitarian work that is done by our government. It could be improved and I think Chairman Royce of the Foreign Affairs Committee deserves uh, some applause for trying to improve uh, humanitarian uh, missions. Um, so I think we need to give more thought to the independent sector and how it can be empowered to focus on these things. With respect to rebalancing the tools within government, um, I mean, look, the military is incredibly important. Um, that actually facilitates a lot of our diplomacy uh, when we have the power and the capability to back up um, the positions that we're taking. The intelligence community is absolutely vital. Um, I mean, we've been criticizing it a little bit here today, but, uh, you know, we need to not forget how incredibly vital it is. Now, you know, I'm trained as an economist, so um, I think about marginal costs and marginal benefits. Are we getting, you know, marginal benefits that are at least equivalent to the marginal costs we're putting out in defense, in intelligence, in statecraft? That's a good question. We need to have some way of dealing with that. And we also need to have structures that, that do reward, in some way, uh, members who take in, uh, an interest in advancing uh, the reform of diplomatic efforts. Uh, one of the problems is that, well, I don't know if it's a problem, but one of the uh, relevant facts is that um, people self-select into careers as well. And Pat laid out what it takes to become a member of Congress or to aspire to be one. <laughs> um, but the same is true with the Foreign Service and the aid agencies. The people that are attracted to those kinds of service are typically not, you know, Republican-oriented people, right? Um, and so... When you've got Republicans looking at reforming the programs, there's sort of a, a disconnect. Um, it's like the, the team loyalty thing that Norm was talking about. 
where they're not our people, so we don't need to spend as much time on them. The military, the intelligence guys, they're our people. That's where our focus should be. So, you know, there is a little bit of a, a public good aspect to coming up with a good foreign policy that's coordinated and all that. So I don't have a, a precisely good answer for you. Um, I think that the Oversight and Government Reform Committee actually could engage in this in a substantive way. And um, there's enough of those people that leadership didn't want to put on some of the other committees um, that they might actually have a good discussion. Um, so, you know, the option is there. Um, I don't know if the chairman or the, the, uh, of the full committee or the National Security Subcommittee are interested in going there, but there are tools that members have at their disposal to kind of force consideration of things if they're willing to go there. Any other thoughts from folks on the panel? Yeah, to, to talk about the, the independent sector, um, one, of the, one of the problems the inter independent sector, the international charities are facing right now is the restrictions placed on them in, in the um, kind of counter-terror regime, the, um, the restrictions on um, their use of finances, their um, incredibly burdensome uh, partner vetting um, uh, regime. And so rather than seeing these um, organizations, the, the Red Cross, the, um, uh, you know, every, every aid organization, um, seeing them as partners and helpmates in this quest for a better world. Instead, so many people, even in the Obama administration, Treasury Department saw them as conduits of terrorist funding mm. um, with no evidence thereof but concern that the paltry amount of money that Save the Children has is going to go um, to building a, a well that, um, uh, that Al-Qaeda might drink from. Um, so, so that's a, a serious um, challenge that we're facing with um, the committees of oversight to actually understand that, that these organizations are having their hands tied in a, in a very unhelpful way. So your organization has also been working kind of at the nexus of um, police militarization and spillover effects from the war on terror. And I'm thinking specifically now about this 1033 program. Um, could you educate us uh, quickly about the program and the concerns that you all have about it and the impacts that you've seen so far? Sure, well, and thanks to um, Mr. Sessions, uh, it's been revitalized. Um, he's getting the police those, those uh, <laughs> those combat tools that they need to keep their streets safe. Um, this is a program where, um, where surplus military equipment is, is shipped off to police departments um, with incredible lack of oversight, we found. Um, and I'm sorry I'm not as, as well-versed on this, but um, one organization, does anybody remember, one organization pretended to be a police department and got this surplus equipment um, and with, with just a fake website. Um, and so, th so there's no oversight there, um, but things like um, armored vehicles, uh, AK-47s, um, the, uh, the sonic cannons um, are going to local police as if they need them. The only real use that they found for them thus far seems to be with, of course, um, SWAT invasions of homes of, of people who, um, who, who are not even armed, but also particularly against protesters. And we've seen that particularly, it, it came to the fore um, in the streets of Ferguson. Um, and that's when President Obama put some restrictions on the program, but those restrictions are, are lifted and, it, and there's free flow of military equipment to our police. Um, Again, the good old days. 
Norm. I think on the police militarization program, that's a that's an example of where the political incentives uh, for a lot of members, they see it as arraigned against the civil liberties because they like to take pictures by tanks with their local mayors and police chiefs and say, you know, I'm in D.C. helping protect uh, crime. And, and, and yeah. just several months before Ferguson, there was, an, there was an, another appropriations amendment that would put some limit on the 1033 program offered by uh, Alan Grayson of Florida. And it was overwhelmingly defeated by, by a strong bipartisan um, anything that, by the way, in this town that has the word bipartisan in front of it is probably bad. Um, majority in the House, many of those members, if you look at that vote, there were many congressional black Congress mem caucus members who voted against um, that amendment. Many of the other, many of these members several months later were denouncing police militarization after Ferguson. Um, it's, it's tragic that it took something like that to cause um, members to realize, to start talking seriously about police militarization. Um, I'd also just like to point out that our chairman, former Campaign for Liberty, former Congressman Ron Paul, has, has uh, called for um, President Trump to reassess his choice for Attorney General. Um, I think that Mr. Sessions has been, uh, even by the low standards that a lot of us had for him, has been a tremendous disappointment in his very retrograde policies on civil liberties and his uh, wanting to set the clock back on the drug war at, at least 30 years, um, back to the days when if you just said war on drugs and you got an excuse to do any, anything against civil liberties and any expansion of the police state. Um, I guess he didn't get the memo that they don't need that to do anymore, anymore because we now have the war on terror to be the blanket excuse for taking away our liberty. Other thoughts on that particular point? On, on well, well, we've just, <laughs> you know, Norm has, uh, has alluded uh, to a number of things here in, in, um, with respect to police militarization. But one of the other areas in which we have seen kind of this, um, this morphing of technology and capabilities from the battlefield here domestically involves a little something um, colloquially known as Stingray. That, that's actually the trade name uh, Harris Corporation trade name for a particular device. The devices themselves are called cell site simulators, and they have the capacity literally to mimic a cell phone tower. And the purpose of these things, at least the reason they were used in Iraq, was essentially to try to locate insurgents, right? The problem is they're not, they're not super discriminating in terms of how much stuff they actually scoop up. They do have very, very precise targeting capabilities, which is, of course, how folks in law enforcement, uh, you know, try to sell it. But we had a Supreme, a, a, an appeals court decision last week in which, and this is, I think, the third or fourth court around the country that's actually said this up to this point in time, the police actually have to have a warrant, a probable cause-based warrant, unless I'm badly mistaken, in order to utilize these things. Now, that's a rare post-9-11 victory. Whether it'll hold up or not, unclear. Um, but it is a victory, and I, and I wanted to bring that up because there have been circumstances. We've spent the last hour plus talking about how awful Congress often has been on a lot of these issues, and all of that is true. This is an area where Congress could probably still do more, essentially to codify this decision. Any thoughts on whether that should actually happen with respect to these kinds of devices and technology? I mean... Sure, yes. why not? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Uh, well, I was just gonna, both in this context and in another context. I mean, we, we see, actually, this goes back to the report that you had mentioned before, the one that we just released uh, last week. There are a number of circumstances where the where either the courts get it wrong or they're incapable or that they are deceived by um, those that, they're, that are supposed to report to them. So, actually, I'm, I was going to, let's stay on, on this, then we'll come back to, to where I was going to go, which is going to be in the context of, of mass surveillance, unless you want me to go there for a moment. No, I mean, I was getting ready to, uh, to kind of transition to um, other solutions, essentially, and, and other areas that we think we ought to potentially look at from a reform standpoint. But sure. you know, surveillance, obviously, for those of you who may not be following this as closely, Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act is due to expire on December 31st of this year, and we spent a lot of time talking about it uh, the, and kind of talking around it to a certain degree. But the major controversy uh, over this particular uh, statutory authority is just exactly how much of our communications they're actually scooping up with this authority, which was sold to the public, essentially, as a tool to go after folks overseas. Al-Qaeda initially, of course, and later ISIS and other Salafist terrorist organizations. But as Senator Wyden has alluded to publicly, and as I think some others have uh, raised, there's a question now about whether or not that particular authority is actually being used to capture domestic-to-domestic -domestic communications of Americans. Uh, and so with that... Yeah, and so first we don't know uh, how much domestic-to-domestic -domestic communications they're capturing, and they won't tell us. They said they were going to tell us, and they said, oh, no, no, sorry, we're not going to tell you now. Uh, either There may be a valid reason, like maybe they can't figure it out, which is problematic in of itself, or, or, or there maybe there are other reasons that, you know, that the estimate would not make sense, or, or whoever, whoever. When you look at the oversight that exists now in the context of the, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act court, which Sue was talking about sort of at the, at the beginning of her conversation, we've seen sort of a number of patterns with, with mass surveillance that, that have taken place. First, and this is where the, the, the intelligence community, as it's reporting these matters to the court, has made a determination as to what they will or will not report. And they haven't told the court what they're going to report, but they, they've sort of said, well, we're going to do these things, but we're not going to do those things. And we should be clear also that these um, executive branch decisions about what to report, this is literally based on the honor system, yes. right? Well, that's, that's, I wanted, I wanted yeah. to make sure that we were clear about that because, again, the courts are relying on executive branch officials being truthful in their declarations. Yeah, that's exactly. So, so there's sort of a there's a fun cascade here. It's, it's first, there's no actual oversight mechanism. Right, the oversight mechanism is Congress. Congress, as we talked about, not so much. So, it's it's fallen to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act court. And they aren't in the business of going investigating these things because that's not what they do. So first, you have to tell them that you're doing something. So the decision about what to tell them, well, we'll tell them this, but we're not going to tell them that. And we've seen that those determinations have been made over time. And then, well, maybe we'll tell you in a timely way, but, but maybe we won't. Maybe we'll tell you a couple years later. Maybe we'll tell you some of it, but not all of it. Um, so we see that happen in, in the report that we put out, documents, instances of that. And then, okay, we're going to report it, but we're not going to actually accurately describe what we're doing. So the court is misled. Uh, or the court will say, okay, stop that. And the, they say, oh, yeah, we stopped it. But they didn't. Or they did stop it, but, not, but, but they stopped like a, a part of it, and they kept doing some other things. I, I'm being vague just because there's a lot of details here that 
would take a long time to explain. But basically, this is the cascade of, of happening. So it's trust us. We're not going to have any real oversight. And, oh, and then uh, we're not going to necessarily tell you exactly what's happening. And we're not going to necessarily tell you in a timely way. And then you tell us to stop doing it, and maybe we will, but maybe we won't. Or, okay, Congress has passed a new authority. We're going to interpret it to go back to do the things that we were doing before anyway, even though the words don't mean what anybody thinks that the words mean. And this is the pattern of behavior that we're seeing. And it's, and it's whack-a-mole. Uh, and uh, the courts don't have the, have the ability to, or at least the, the, the willingness, and, per, and perhaps at least in certain circumstances, the ability to stop it. And Congress isn't acting to stop it. So what we have now is this debate over what the legislation is going to look like. As Pat indicated, these provisions are going to expire at the end of the year. Uh, we see the national security hardliners saying, it's all fine. Let's just, let's just reauthorize what we have before. Let's do it forever. Like, we don't even need to look at it again. Like, it's, it's cool. And, and to be clear, every single member on the Republican side on the Senate Intelligence Committee has signed on to right. Senator Tom Cotton's bill to do exactly what Daniel has described, which is make FISA Section 702 permanent without change. That's right. And, and the Democrats who are involved. So when you look at the Democrats on the House Intelligence Committee, they're handpicked by the Speaker. So they have a very narrow perspective on these kinds of things. So their idea of fixes are the kinds of things that you would look at and be like, this isn't a fix. Like, this is, this is cosmetic or it doesn't really do much of anything. Um, so uh, right now there's sort of this huge institutional fight that's being queued up. On one hand, you have the hardliners who control the intelligence committees where the legislation has to not get stuck there. So it forces the Judiciary Committee that's writing the bill to write it in such a way that it won't get stuck, because otherwise what you end up is a, a sort of a time play. I, there's probably a Seinfeld example that I can't think of about <laughs> what happens like the last moment. It's the Frogger, right? George has the, the uh, arcade machine, and he has a high score on it, and he has to get across the street. And he has to do it within like a minute and a half. If you don't do it by the minute and a half or whatever it is, the, high, the, the capacitor will run out of juice, and that's the end of the, end of the uh, device the end of the, um, the game. So he has to go and he has to get it all the way across. So that's what, that's, what, that's what the intelligence community likes to do. That's what those folks like to do is the, it's the squeeze play, right? You have no time left and people are going to die if you don't right now, this second, do the thing that we want you to do. And I know you don't really like the thing, but don't worry, we'll come back to it later. Maybe we won't, but we're not gonna say just like it, it'll be okay. I like to call that the Jack Bauer 24 move. Yes. <laughs> Yes, right. It's the ticking clock. But that's everything in Congress. Yes, and that and that's right. And, I mean, in Congress, like there's often a for, but in, in the intelligence context, it's particularly egregious. I think. I think we're going to go to Norm oh. just for a quick okay. kind of closing comment, and then we'll go to questions from the audience. Um, uh, on the um, just to, to put a little more set to set what what is going to happen in December, what December is going to look like. You have 702 expiring December 31st, December 15th, I believe. You have the debt ceiling increase and the continuing resolution funding the government. So not only will we look expire, so not only will we be looking at 702 in December when most normal people will be will have other things on their mind besides obsessively following Congress. Most staffers and members of Congress will want to have other things on their mind besides worrying about government spending, government debt, and um, a debate on 702, whether or not to keep junk or reform 702. Um, so it is setting up to a train wreck across the board. And this is, this is the type of situation where they win and we lose. And I, I also just wanted to point out, since we're talking about 702, is 
Um, this was the section that was used to go after um, whoever Trump's first head of uh, national security was who got... Uh, Remember, it came out that he was Flynn? having conversations with Russians. You're talking think, about General Flynn? Yeah, yes, General Flynn, and he uh, had to resign. I think it's also what is, for those of you who saw the revelations about spying on Manafort, whatever you think of General Flynn, General Manafort, or President Trump, um, I, f I think we all ought to be disturbed by the fact that it's become almost an open secret that the intelligence agencies we're going after, we're using 702 to go after members of a political, of a, a major party presidential campaign, his transition team, and maybe even his administration because they disagree with his policies. And the fact that the majority leader of the United States Senate said on network TV that President Trump should stop attacking the CIA because intelligence agencies have a way of undermining administrations that they disagree with. And he wasn't saying that as, oh my God, look at how far we've come down the road towards uh, allowing this national security state to get out of control. He was saying that almost jokingly as a ha-ha Trump, the CIA is going to get you if you don't um, fall in line and um, follow um, the, uh, the, the, the DC and do what the DC class wants you to do. Um, again, I don't know what the solution is other than to um, just get some, just get people who are serious about draining the swamp and it's not just a catchy slogan. And I'm, I'm not 100% sure how to do that, but I think that the first step in, in curing your problem is admitting you have a problem and seeing what the extent of the problem is. is. We've got, I think, about uh, 10 minutes uh, for audience questions here. So if anybody has got anything they'd like to raise, sir, down here. And if you could state your name and any organizational affiliation. Thank you. Um, my name is Woody Kaplan, and I am the president emeritus of Sue's organization. Um, you do know the name of it, Woody. Okay. Yes. Defending <coughs> rights and dissent. Defending rights and dissent. Very Thank good. You. Um, I also want to start by giving a huge shout out to Cato for this. Just a huge shout out. And to hear somebody on stage say, talk about Dr. Paul and Barbara Lee in the same breath is just extraordinary. And we're <laughs> lucky to have this happen. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Um, this may not be the first thing that everybody heard today, but when I heard Sue talk about the media, FBI happenstance, where people broke into an FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, and committed civil disobedience. And as a result of it, gave an extraordinary amount of information to people what the FBI was doing to them. I'm talking about Americans. And I may be President Emeritus instead of President anymore, because at one point I suggested pulling the Hoover name off the FBI building, getting a ladder and getting a crowbar and doing it. So that may be my demise. But I'm sort of interested in how the panel in general feels about civil disobedience as a way of dealing with these things. Thank you. Well, I'm 100% in favor of civil disobedience, Woody. <laughs> <laughs> I'm much more cautious about it. Um, some of these things that are being described sound a lot like breaking and entering or criminal trespass. Um, we have these laws for very good reasons. Uh, there are things that happen in government that are excessive. 
unproductive uh, violations of American civil liberties. Um, I'm very reluctant to condone breaking the law in order to rectify those situations. I'd much prefer, uh, in fact, I would oppose breaking the law to rectify those situations. What I would support is figuring out the incentive structure that causes government actors to uh, overstretch, go beyond what their legal and moral uh, authority should be, and fixing that. Other thoughts? I mean, for, for us, it's, it's case by case. It depends on the circumstance. You know, there are, there are some laws that are just and there are some laws that are unjust, and you have to measure the goal versus the means. If you're sitting in, you know, the classic example is the 1960s, and you're sitting in at a lunch counter where you're not allowed to sit there, and the law says you can't do it, and you're going to do it anyway because you're trying to make a point and there's no other way to make it, that is a reasonable thing to do, I think. There are many circumstances where it's not a reasonable thing to do. So, so I, I mean, without having a specific instance, I can't be more nuanced. Yeah, I, I seem to remember a group of folks who got really angry about a series of unjust laws that were passed between 1765 and 1775 and decided to engage in the ultimate act of civil disobedience, which was armed revolution against their existing government. I, I'm not up here advocating that today. <laughs> I don't think that we're quite at that point. But I do, I do, I think, share part of what Kurt is maybe getting at here. It's not, that I, it's not that I necessarily have concerns about civil disobedience per se. What I think is interesting is when people feel so alienated from their government that they don't feel like they have any other choice, right? And, and it just seems to me that getting at that root problem, which I think is what Kurt is kind of talking about here, we have to find ways to do that. And it just seems to me that citizen engagement, especially when we know how few people actually go out and vote, um, is, is where a lot of the energy ultimately, more, more, you know, we need to have it focused. But I will say that there's lots from our history to kind of remind us about exactly how far you cannot push people before people will push back. And I think we're, we're seeing a lot of that. We're seeing a tremendous amount of that. And that's a failure of government. Can I add two things to that? That, that's a failure to actually engage. Yes. So one, what we're seeing right now at the state level in a number of states and localities is efforts to criminalize protests. So right, there are all these laws that are being passed to make it impossible for people to go and do what they could do a month ago or do what they could do yesterday, which is yeah. to get a permit and to go and to gather and to make their voices heard. Yeah. And that is done to try, you know, we saw, was it last 10 years? Free speech zones. I don't know yeah. what the hell, what's a free speech zone, right? You can <laughs> protest over here, but you can't do it over here. You can't do where they can hear you, like that kind of. So, there, so that's problematic. And there's the other thing, which is like we, we're seeing in other contexts, people going to member offices and, and, and basically occupying the offices, yeah. right? Uh, and that's, you're not allowed to do that. Yeah. But people are doing, you know, so, there, so there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of things on that scale that, that, one, you know, that one needs to be cognizant of. Norm? I don't... I don't I don't disapprove. I, in some circumstances, I approve of civil disobedience. I think it's a question of does it effectively inv um, advance your cause and also um, are you doing it peacefully? Are you prepared to accept the consequences? Um, any kind of violence, of course, um, as a libertarian who believes in the non-aggression principle, I, I strongly condemn. Um, but I would say that on the occupying a member's office is that... Um, the system 
can work. It can work for our side. We just have to be willing to put in the work and the time to make it work. And instead of physically occupying the office, one thing we can do is occupy their phone lines, shut them down. This is why President Obama didn't go to war in 2013 in Syria, is because the phones were literally ringing off the hook in Capitol Hill from people saying, don't start another wasteless, unconstitutional war in the Middle East. And um, that is proof that on these issues of war and peace, the war party doesn't always win. The only reason they win is because they're always engaged and our side isn't engaged properly. And, and using the leverage that we, have, that we have, given that public opinion is usually with us. I think we've got time for <clears throat> one more question. The gentleman in the back with the very colorful shirt. <laughs> Hi, thank you. Um, this is William Nihazel. I'm from the Whistleblower and Source Protection Program. So thank you for organizing this, and I want to thank Norm for mentioning this sort of egregious state of uh, whistleblower protections currently. And I think it was Patrick who mentioned the um, recent report um, that Marcy Wheeler did titled The lack of Institutional Lack of Candor. So given the institutional lack of candor, given all of the lying um, that the intelligence community has done to the FISA court and to Congress, um, what, what do you think are the chances that we could maybe get some whistleblower protection language included in the 702 reform effort? Um, to send a signal that we want to keep that as an important sort of safety valve um, as a check on the intelligence community? Great question. Well, like anything you want to see get made into policy, you need to have people that are interested in the issue um, write language. And they need to build a coalition, uh, at least on principles, um, before they actually draft the language. And then once the language is drafted and vetted and you know, goes through all the, the processes to make sure that it's acceptable to the, the civil rights community and the Constitution folks and everybody else, that they can assemble a, a broad bipartisan coalition for that language, both an outside game with you know, nonprofit organizations and advocacy groups, um, as well as an inside game with robust co-sponsorships from Republicans and Democrats, not only in the House, but also in the Senate. Um, and you know, crafting the language in a way that uh, will hopefully be acceptable and preferable even to what, what, uh, whatever else would otherwise be put out there. I think that's the way you want to do it. So if you've got people on the inside that you want to work with, I would encourage you to start now um, because it will take time to build it and get it ready to go. So I had understood that there is a good chance of that. I think that that puts organizations like mine in an awkward position because even with really strong whistleblower protections that we support and advocate for, there's no way we can support 702 unless it also um, ends the program. Yeah, so I'm not going to talk to its chances of being included because I, I, I don't want to necessarily go there, but I, but I would say that uh, so there was Whistleblower Enhancement Protection Act a couple years ago, and it would have passed faster and sooner, but the intelligence community fought against protections for IC contractors. And there's different aspects, of course, as, as you know, of like, you know, there's the, the laws that protect uh, directly, and then there's also the remedies for retaliation. There's a number of things that go with that. Um, so I, I don't want to talk to its odds of inclusion. I suspect that it's going to be looking at the gestalt of the package. Um, yeah, yeah, Liza, I'm sure you want to add more to that as well. We are not. Yep. 
And just to repeat that since Blaise is not mic'd, um, she was basically saying that it's important to be very defensive because a lot of bad things could go through. It's not just about getting something better, it's about pre preventing something worse from happening. Is that it? That is our time for today. I want to thank Kirk Couchman, Suyudri, Daniel Schumann, Norm Singleton. I thank all of you who are here in the auditorium and those of you online. Thank you. And thank you, Patrick, for organizing this and all your fine work on behalf of civil liberties. Thank you.